Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Nearly half of parents with kids in grades K through 12 said the first year of the pandemic had a negative impact on their children's emotional well-being. That's according to a 2022 Pew study. The pandemic increased cases of anxiety and depression, including amongst children. Children like Connecticut's new kid governor, Ellie Mendez. Let me tell you a little secret about myself. I, too, have been learning how to cope with anxiety and depression. Did you know that 5.6 million kids are diagnosed with anxiety and 4.2 million kids are diagnosed with depression? This is a real community issue. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Later, we'll learn about a program at Yale that's helping to increase the number of women in elected and appointed office across the U.S. But first, Ellie Mendez was inaugurated as Connecticut's newest kid governor earlier this year. She's a fifth grader at Monroe Elementary School, and her platform focuses on raising awareness about anxiety and depression in kids. She joins us now with her teacher, Michael Wren. I started by asking Ellie what it felt like to be chosen as kid governor. It feels amazing. As soon as I found out I was kid governor, I knew that now I have a voice and people will actually want to listen to me. And I can voice my own opinions and people will actually understand. And you are using your voice in really powerful ways to not just have an impact on other students and young people, but really help all of us understand. Talk to me a little bit about the process. What did it take for you to become the kid governor? It was exciting and stressful at the same time. There were many parts to the campaign, from building out the platform to making my video and getting all the kids really understand why I was running around anxiety and depression. It was a great learning experience. Mr. Wren, you are Ellie's teacher. You have worked with young people throughout your career. And I'm listening to her talk about the process to become governor and thinking about how many adults can't even navigate a process to win such an important position. What was it like for you when you heard about Ellie's platform and then her eventual win? Needless to say, Ellie is a very impressive young fifth grader. And this her demeanor, the way she carried herself throughout this whole process just exemplifies that. Um, Ellie is a student who is super busy outside of school. Uh, She does soccer. She does gymnastics. Uh, So for her to, in addition to her schoolwork and all of these things outside of school, to take this on as well was extremely impressive. And to further elaborate on that, this is her platform is something which I'm sure Ellie will share with you that's near and dear to her heart. You know, this is something that she has experienced and wanted to make a change. So to see someone who has experienced what her platform is, anxiety and depression, and then to get up in front of the, we're a small school, so about 65th graders, 
and give her presentation in front of these 65th graders was beyond impressive. Ellie, let's talk about that platform, because part of your platform in campaigning for Kid Governor was about anxiety and depression. Talk to us about that platform and why it was so important for you running for Kid Governor. I feel like it's really important that all adults and parents, teachers have a better understanding anxiety and depression and to be a little bit more aware of the signs and needs for the kids who have it. Yes, yelling and more listening. I want to create tools for kids in the classroom to be able to speak up and be heard. Less yelling and more listening. What an important message for everyone. One of the other things that I appreciate about this, Ellie, this is a topic that often people don't talk about, that often people navigate these challenges and don't talk about it because of fear or shame or not being understood. Was it hard for you to say, these are the things I want to talk about? Or did you feel like I can do this even if it's hard? Sort of both. When I first experienced anxiety, it was very hard for me to talk about it. I would usually cry a lot, but I learned to get over it by my mom. She's been very powering to me and a very help of me coping with anxiety. What a wonderful tribute to your mom, the ways that she supported you and continues to encourage you. And Mr. Wren, you have also been a support, not just to Ellie, but other students as well. Talk to us about what you're seeing as a teacher. I don't think these were things that people widely talked about maybe five or 10 years ago. We just dismissed what young people were feeling and experiencing. What are you seeing from your vantage point as a teacher? Kids have to navigate so much more these days than they did five years ago. Um, You know, this is my 20th year teaching, so I've seen quite a bit. Kids have had to battle in the past with, you know, notes being passed around or something like that. Uh, students talking about them on the playground. Well, kids, I'd say within the, the last five years with the rise of social media, they have to navigate so much more. Um, and you think these these fifth graders are only 10 and 11 years old. Well, the reality is they are on a lot of these platforms as well. So in addition to all of those hurdles that kids had to overcome prior to the social media age, those still exist. And now you add this on top of it, it's a lot for these kids to manage. And um, we see it. We, we, we see what text messages come through on group chats for some of these kids, which you would hope that all parents are closely uh, managing and watching over. But the reality is, these kids are resilient. They have ways of getting around and hiding things. And unfortunately, when the parents don't see some of the things that other students are saying, then students are not going to speak up because they know that the whole point of them sneaking around behind their parents back to be able to do this stuff is going to get them in trouble if you know a student says something to them on a platform that they're not supposed to be on in the first place. So um here at school, we encourage kids. We, we have a, a wonderful school counselor and uh, school psychologists. And of course, myself as the teacher, it's important for us to make students aware that it's okay to share how they are feeling 
regardless of what the situation is. And um, my teaching style has definitely changed over the last five years, which Ellie can attest to, um, where I try to be a lot less rigid in my approach. I'm a, I'm a very structured teacher by, by nature, but in order to help students feel more comfortable in the classroom that they can talk to me, it's much more of kind of like an open door policy. I try to provide students multiple ways to solve problems so that they're encouraged to speak up and, and share what their voice is, what, what is bothering them. And I think that has gone a long way in terms of helping students feel comfortable speaking up to me in addition to just the school counselor and psychologist. Ellie, you said in your video that people don't take anxiety and depression amongst kids as seriously as they should. And Mr. Wren just talked about how it's had effect on him as a teacher to be more open to that and create spaces where kids can feel and be and talk and not be afraid to do it. Why do you think people don't take this as seriously when it comes to young people like yourself who are navigating this? I think it's because times have changed and adults have more of a hard time believing that kids at such a young age are experiencing anxiety or depression. They tend to think it's a more behavioral phase than actual serious mental health. And that needs to change. Also, people back then, they didn't use so much technology as they do now. We have so much technology, internet, Facebook, TikTok, that people are pushing themselves to be something that they're not, and that's not okay. Ms. Seren, I have been an educator for about 25 years, and I'm listening to Ellie and thinking about how much we learn from young people rather than what we think we're teaching them, the ways that they can help us learn. And one of the things that is, you know, technology is important. One of the other real challenges is COVID and the ways in which isolating young people, more screen time may have contributed to some of these factors. As a teacher, what are you seeing in terms of the, the long-term impact of COVID and the pandemic and the ways that we had to balance keeping people safe with keeping them connected? That was one of the most challenging parts, and I think it kind of opened Pandora's box a little bit because during COVID, um, you know, we, we were not in the classroom with the students, obviously, and we encouraged this back and forth between students that, you know, as a teacher, I, I couldn't really monitor. You know, if you think about Zoom breakout rooms, you know, we would teach a lesson, students would go into Zoom breakout rooms and they would be talking to each other. Now, if we were in the classroom, I would be able to monitor those discussions much easier than I am in a Zoom breakout room. We would encourage students to use Google Chats, you know, to message each other their ideas. So it's almost like us teachers prompted this interaction outside of what we could actually observe, um, which, Ellie's platform talks about that created a whole new wave of issues for students where, you know, I mean, in the classroom, obviously, they're going to have disagreements. Students are, aren't always the nicest to each other, but we're right there when we're in the classroom to to engage and um, kind of alleviate the situation. Whereas these interactions that are beyond our observation, it's not possible for us to do that. So um 
unfortunately, uh, it all started with what we encouraged kids to do during COVID, but it was a necessity at the time to maintain those connections between students when they couldn't meet in the classroom. So it is, it's a conundrum for sure. And uh, it's something that, like I said, was a necessity at the time, but now it's an issue to try to break that trend, which we started um, as educators. Ellie, sometimes being a kid can be really difficult. And a lot of times it can be an absolutely beautiful thing. What is the most amazing experience that you've had so far becoming Kid Governor? The inauguration. The inauguration was the best day of my life because I got to meet so many new amazing people that I think I would never get to meet ever in my life. And I got to sign autographs, which was very fun. I actually signed someone's cat picture, which I didn't think I would do. I got to learn a lot about the three branches of government. I got to learn why we vote and why it's so important. And it was just a great learning experience. Ellie, I teach government and political science at Quinnipiac University, and we would love to have you on campus someday so that you can sign an autograph for me and for all of us, because you are teaching all of us. What do you say to other young people who may be struggling with anxiety and depression or struggling to get adults in their lives to listen to them? What do you say to other kids? It's okay. And you can always ask for help. Never be ashamed of something. Maybe it's not the best, but it's okay because you can always ask for help. Whether, whenever you think that you can't, you can because it's possible for me. I suffered, but then I learned and I asked for help. And that's how I feel so much better inside. So if you can do that, and if I can do that, anyone can. Mr. Wren, you have to be incredibly proud of Ellie and really of all of your students who are reminding us that it's okay to ask for help, that we don't always have it together, and that that makes us human. What's the message that you would offer, Mr. Wren, to other adults and people who are listening to this conversation and learning from Ellie, given your position as a teacher, given someone who has a vantage point that many people do not? What's your message? Well, I have a four-year-old son at home and um, he goes to preschool. And sometimes when I ask him about his day, uh, he doesn't even want to talk about it. And he's a four-year-old. So um, I can imagine with parents, it's very difficult at times to get your children to discuss their feelings as to how they're feeling at school, about school, um, about their friends, but it is so worthwhile. I mean, I've, I've sat through a lot of parent teacher conferences in my day and I start every parent teacher conference with, um, so how is your child liking fifth grade? just to give parents the opportunity to share and to discuss from their perspective things that I don't see. Um, and inevitably, the majority of the parents, their response to me in that moment is, I think they're doing, I think everything's going well. Uh, so-and-so doesn't really complain about their homework. And I, you know, I would encourage parents to just dig a little bit deeper, as difficult as it is to have some of those conversations at home. I get it. Kids are, we work them hard here at school. They're tired when they come home. And talking about the day is something that they're not always going to want to do. 
but the value of talking about not just what happened that day at school, but how they feel about what happened that day at school will just allow students the opportunity to truly to truly voice what's going on instead of just, you know, we covered two digit times two digit multiplication today, mom and dad. But um, to talk about how they feel about the academics, about the social aspects of school, about just what's happening, just giving students the opportunity to try and share. And I know that's difficult because a lot of times they don't actually want to share. But I mean, Ellie speaking on her platform is trying to exhibit the value of allowing students the opportunity to truly talk about their feelings. Can I add something? Of course. So every single time when me and my family have dinner, we'll always do what's your high and what's your low for the day. And I know I'm not a parent yet, and I don't have kids or anything, not anytime soon. Um, We always, I feel like my parents, since my brother has really bad anxiety, I feel like I can kind of help him more when he shares his high or his low, because then I can get more about it and try to help him. Ellie, I think that's important because... It's about all of us realizing there are highs and lows in our days, that we can share that and be supported in that, but also know that someone else is listening to us. And whether you are a fifth grader, an amazing fifth grader, or an adult, knowing that someone is listening makes all the difference. Ellie, you're in fifth grade. You've got a while before you finish school. What do you want to be when you grow up? Well... When I'm older, I want to be Chief Human Resource Officer of a multi-billion dollar company. You have big dreams, big goals, and you have the persistence to make it happen. And so I can't wait until we see Ellie Mendez on the cover of Forbes magazine leading human resources for a multi-billion dollar industry. We're going to speak it into existence. Mr. Wren, I want to ask you this. We hear so much bad news about young people, so many stories of people being critical of young people. But you and I get to see every day the amazing power of young people. What gives you hope for the future? I think kids today um, are a lot more flexible than they were five, 10 years ago. Part of that is they've been exposed to so much more. Uh, Part of that, you know, from just speaking from my perspective as a teacher, I know that I've changed my approach to my instruction. And um, we always encourage our fifth graders to come up with a way to solve problems that works for them. Um, Something we do here is we teach the kids three or four different ways to solve a problem. And they have to, they choose to gravitate towards the way that best suits them. And I think that we've been doing this for a couple of years now. And um, I've definitely seen a shift in students' willingness to take chances because they have the freedom to do so. And I think laying that foundation as they move on to middle school uh, is teaching them to be a bit more flexible with their thinking and you know to be a flexible uh critical thinker that that's well versed in problem solving is something that has always been one of the most difficult things to teach students and this slight adjustment in our instruction and 
all the stuff that these kids have to manage nowadays obviously can be a bit more anxiety producing, which is why Ellie's platform is so important, but it's also kind of reshaping the way that students think. And that makes me hopeful knowing that they're going to be better critical thinkers and problem solvers. And, you know, we're sending them off to middle school. It's not like we're sending them off into the workplace, but it's got to start somewhere. So why not in fifth grade before they make that, that jump to middle school? Ellie, what about you? What gives you hope for the future? Well, kids. Kids make me hopeful because we're the future of tomorrow. I believe that this generation, my generation, is a generation of change because if we made it through the pandemic, then we can definitely make it through anything else. Ellie Mendez is Connecticut's kid governor and a fifth grader at Monroe Elementary School. Michael Wren is Ellie's teacher. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. You can find out more about Ellie and her platform at our website. It's ctpublic.org slash disrupted. Coming up, we'll learn about the work of the Yale Campaign School and how they're helping more women get involved in politics. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. In the 2018 election, we saw a huge jump in the number of Democratic women running for office. Since then, we've also seen an increase in Republican women who are getting involved in electoral politics. But women, regardless of political party, still face a number of barriers. I think there's this hesitancy sometimes for women to want to know all the information before they jump into the ring, right? There's this idea that you have to be a policy expert in every possible subject matter. Um, you need to understand the ins and outs of the roles and responsibilities. Women like to be prepared and they want to know that running for office, uh, they tend to be more motivated to jump in if they feel like there's a pathway for them to be um, solution-oriented leaders, right? That was Valerie Dowling, director at the Women's Democracy Network at the International Republican Institute. She was speaking as part of a Penn State panel last month called Politics Unequal, the State of Women in Elected Office. This segment, we're talking about how we get more women involved in politics. It's something that the campaign school at Yale has been focusing on for decades. 
We're joined now by Patty Russo, Executive Director of the Campaign School, and Ernestine Dawson, who graduated from the program in 2017. She most recently served as Digital Director and Advisor to the Chairman for the House Democratic Caucus, Representative Hakeem Jeffries. Patty started by telling me a little bit more about the Campaign School. It is the most amazing, amazing experience for women who are interested in running for office, interested in running campaigns, or for women who are interested in learning how to be a more effective leader on an issue they feel passionately about in their community. Uh, The way in which we have led our premier five-day training program, our 28th year, I'm happy to, to share as well. It's like no other experience that a a potential candidate, potential leader can have um, in in our country. As you think about where this program started and where you are today, what is it that you want people to get out of participating in this program? Oh, this sense of that they can do it, that they are unstoppable, uh, that we will always be, and Ernestine will speak to this, the safety net that they will need. Politics is rough and tumble, as you know, and it's gotten increasingly so. Um, uh, And so when I think about where we were in 1994, we were created really as a result of the Year of the Woman in 1992. There were so many women both on the Democratic and Republican side, that were running for office, running for Congress. That was the year of Carol Mosley Braun running for the United States Senate and winning. So, so many of the women that came through Connecticut uh, to raise money uh, uh, won that year. So those of us who have been very politically active, and you know my history, you know how politically involved I've been forever, were feeling rather smug about shattering that glass ceiling. It's like, wow, finally, look at all these women who won. Now we're going to see this sea change. We did not. 1993 happened. It was as if 1992 was some fantasy that it didn't happen. So that's when a group of uh, leaders in our state, Rosa DeLauro, a congresswoman, uh, then Congresswoman um, Nancy Johnson, who was representing the 5th Congressional District at the time, um, Andre Alian Brooks, a New York Times reporter from Westport, got us together. I was with the Permanent Commission on the Status of Women at the time and said, what is it going to take? What is it going to take to fill this pipeline with amazing women who want to run for office? So we started working together. We worked together for a year and put this kind of position paper together of what our dream campaign school for women would look like. We wanted it to be issue neutral. We wanted it to be nonpartisan. Um, We wanted it at Yale University. We wanted an international component to the work. Fast forward to what I call the Barack Obama phenomenon. We started seeing more and more women of color kind of getting the bug and saying, hey, I love this, you know, taking time off from work or or school to work for Barack Obama's presidential campaign. And then they looked and they said, why not me? I can do this. I want to do more of this. And so that's when we started seeing more and more women of color come to our school. And so now, for instance, last year, the median age of a woman coming to our school now is 29, 30. And the majority of the women who come to our school are women of color. 
let's talk about that shift, Ernestine, because, you know, Patty said many women were experiencing this question, why not me? Knowing that women, particularly women of color, had often been working behind the scenes on campaigns or political organizing, a long tradition, and then coming to this space. Being a woman in politics is always tough. Being a woman of color in politics is particularly difficult. What was for you the experience of being in the campaign school and how you carry that through your career? I was told to apply by a graduate. It was 2017. Everybody was bombed uh, about uh, Secretary Clinton not winning. I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next, because I think like every other woman in America, we all hoped that we would have the first woman president and we all wanted to be a part of that administration. And when it didn't happen, I think a lot of us was just lost in politics. We didn't see where we fit in into politics. I didn't know if I wanted to stay in politics after that, especially as a woman of color. I didn't see a place for me. Um, But I had heard about, at that time, it was the Women's Campaign School. I had heard about it. And I think I actually applied only because I needed something to do. And I did not know where my next anything was going to come from. Because since Barack Obama's campaign, I have been living, breathing politics. And so I went because... um, I needed confidence. And in that particular time, I wanted to be around a group of women that I felt would give me that confident boost. And I wanted to get out of Washington, D.C. for a minute. One of the things that I hear in your reflection, Ernestine, is that politics is never just politics. It's incredibly personal in terms of how people see a pathway for themselves, for the communities that they serve and represent but also their ability to build coalition with other people who get it without having to explain every aspect and that power of women coming together. You talk about that loss uh, in the presidential election, wanting to get out of D.C. And then we hit a global pandemic that upended so much of how people did their jobs. Early in the pandemic, the New York Times wrote about you And in that article, it says the following, quote, she became an audible ray of sunshine for lawmakers. How did that confidence that you were able to build through the campaign school, that sort of energy that anyone who has ever been around Patty Russo, it's infectious and you can't help but bring that energy. How did that experience in the campaign school, seeing how Patty navigates difficult times, how did that impact the way that you navigate what can often be extreme negativity and critique toward women to still be that ray of sunshine? What I got out of the campaign school was not only the confidence that I needed to stay in politics, but the confidence to know that I could tackle anything in politics. When I left the campaign school, I still had not lined up a job. I still didn't know where I was going and what I was gonna be doing. But when I left, I knew that I would get a job and I knew I would get something. Where it was, how it was going to be done, I didn't know. I will admit, Patty was trying to push me to still consider to run for office. And I told her, I think I'm going to stay behind the scenes. Um, But I wasn't sure exactly what that was going to look like for me. Um, And so I did. I walked away with a new sense of self and a new sense of purpose of why I was in politics. Um, So when we fast forward to the pandemic, 
And this was something that, of, of, of course, as you said, globally, we had never seen before. The thing that I was able to really dig deep into that I learned at the campaign school that I really appreciated about it is that everybody has their niche. Um, and if you are willing to dig deep, you can not only perfect that niche, but figure out what else you can add to it to make it even bigger and greater. And unbeknownst to a lot of people, I used to uh, be a courtroom clerk, which means I used to manage courtrooms for federal judges here in D.C. And so a part of that is managing so many different personalities to ensure everybody gets to, on the right page to execute a goal at the end of the day. And so that's basically what I had to do during the pandemic. Uh, those conference calls that we had to sit on to ensure that then Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Chairman Jeffries were still able to meet and come together with their colleagues to figure out a path forward for the American people. My goal and my whole job during those conference calls was to just keep everybody on the same page. That was the only thing I was supposed to do and that's the only thing I, I set out to do. And since we're all confined to our little spaces and places in our homes, I also wanted to bring a sense of joy in a time that we were in a sense of the unknown and sadness around what was happening around us. One of the things that I think is so unique about the campaign school is that it is intentionally and unapologetically nonpartisan and issue neutral. And in a time when our politics seems so divisive, where everything seems like an argument and it doesn't seem like a space where people can just come together and be, you have intentionally curated this space that says, regardless of your political party or affiliation or ideology or issue agenda, this is a space that will build confidence and cultivate that kind of connection so that even when there are arguments on policy, we can see each other as people first. Why is that so important to the campaign school? And do you feel it's become more difficult and challenging given the broader political space that we're in? You know, I hope that our grads, when they leave their phenomenal five days with us at the law school, um, that they leave with this sense of, we have more in common as Americans, as global women than not. That is always our goal, right? That we can always find common ground. And, you know, sometimes it's harder than others. This is a very paralyzing moment, you know, in, in our history. I come by it simply. I worked for the late, great Bella Abzug. And back then there were even fewer uh, women members of Congress. So she had to rely on her girlfriends, Shirley Chisholm and Millicent Fenwick on the other side. Um, a lot of times when I talk uh, to groups of young women and I'll say to them, how many of you have credit cards in your wallets? And of course, every hand always goes up, right? And I was like, well, you have, you know, women who came before us to thank for that because not that long ago, you had to have your father sign the application or your husband sign the application. I saw all the possibilities back then, all the collaboration, and they were radically collaborative. Um, so they would just say, you know, what can we 
what are the top five things? What are the top five issues that we want to confront and work on and improve? What can we do? What can we do together? So then I saw that. And it's just, we've just paid it forward as a, you know, at the school. We've always been nonpartisan. We've always been issue neutral. So you don't have to be pro or con an issue uh, to come to our school. Uh, our admissions team does a phenomenal job of selecting the right candidates to come to our school. I have to say in our 28 year history, we've never had a, a challenge with that. We give our students the opportunity to get to know each other as people first, which is not happening right now. You know, Becca Ballant from Vermont, new Congresswoman from uh, Vermont, first Congresswoman ever elected from Vermont, uh, talked about her first week in Congress. Uh, she's a Democrat. And she said, I was, you know, I was in the cafeteria and I went and I got a, a muffin and a coffee and I sat down. There was only one table. It happened to be a table of Republicans. She didn't know that. She just sat down and she's talking and the Republicans were talking about the challenges with the RNC and, you know, and so they turned to Becca and they said, well, you know how the RNC, you know how they are, you know how they can be. And she said, actually, I don't. I'm a Democrat. And they said, well, what are you going to leave now? She says, if we can't have a muffin and a cup of coffee together, we're in big trouble. And she said that she walked away after that hour with a new friend on the Republican side. That's what we see all the time at our school. We may not agree on everything, but we treat each other with respect and kindness and kindness. Coming up, we'll hear more about the barriers that women face in getting into politics. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Stay with us. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. I think we have to give credit to the American who has done more to get women into politics than anybody else this century, which is Donald Trump. Hillary Clinton, first female uh, major party nominee for president, did not have this galvanizing effect on American women where they all decided, I see myself in her, there's a place for me in politics. It did not happen. The day after Trump was elected, women were literally in the streets. The Emily's List website crashed because women were just sending in their resumes seeing, saying, what can I do? How can I do something about this? That was Time Magazine political correspondent Molly Ball in a Penn State panel last month called Politics Unequal, the State of Women in Elected Office. Next, we're talking to one organization that's been working to get more women in politics for two decades. The campaign school at Yale is led by Patty Russo. She joins us now along with campaign school grad Ernestine Dawson. She recently served as digital director and advisor to the chairman for the House Democratic Caucus, Representative Hakeem Jeffries. Ask Patty what we're seeing right now in terms of national trends of women running for political office. It's a very, very difficult political climate out there for women right now. Uh, we've all heard the stories, even in Connecticut, you know, we've had this kind of sense in Connecticut that we're in this bubble, that there's, that there's more tolerance, that we're more, we, we treat each other more kindly. We don't. So all of that negativity and hostility that we're seeing on the federal, on the national is starting to trickle down here in Connecticut. Um, it's very disappointing. It is 
terrifying at times. Um, there have been situations where I've uh, attended debates for our grads just to be a friendly face in the audience. And um, really disruptive people have had to leave, have been asked to leave. It's a very unsettling time. And we don't need one more challenge that will that will hurt women from taking the leap, right? We talk a lot at the school about doing things afraid. Do things afraid. Let us be there. We will be there for you. And Ernestine spoke so eloquently about that. We don't just say, come, have a phenomenal week with us, and then good luck to you, right? We stay in close touch with our grads, which is why we only accept 80 every year. So our, our five-day training is coming up. It's the first year in three years. We're back at Yale Law School the week of June 12th. Uh, we are, we've got our online application period open right now. People can go to tcsyale.org and apply. Please apply. Take the leap. We will be there for you. Um, you know, every year we tweak our curriculum. Ernestine will speak to this. We tweak our curriculum based on what is going on in the world. And what is going on in the world right now is security on the campaign trail. We rev that up last year in a big way. We want our grads to be ready for anything that comes their way anything that comes their way. And so as a result of that, we deal with challenging issues that week so that when they leave us, they are prepared. And they also know that they can call us. They can, you know, Ernestine will tell you, I'm a night owl. My husband will say to me, are you done for the day? And I'll say, well, I think so. And then my phone rings and it's 10 o'clock. And that's when our grads are getting off the campaign trail. They've been campaigning all day. That's when they need a little pivot, right? They need a little pep talk. Um, that's what we offer to our to our grads. And I think that that is kind of our, our secret sauce. You know, that I, we never want our grads to feel isolated. I'll say to them, so when I'm, now that I'm back traveling, I'll say, okay, I'm coming to DC. Who wants to have breakfast with me? If you have good news, I can't wait to hear it. If you're floundering, you need to see me. You need to come. And if you think you're going to hide, I will find you. That's the kind of connection we have with our grads. Ernestine, we increasingly hear from younger people that they are disillusioned about politics, that they question their role in democracy or the ability to be inclusive uh, in that regard. What do you say to young women who may be contemplating whether a career in politics is even a path for them, whether that's running for elected office or, or working behind the scenes. What do you say to them based on your experience in the campaign school, but also your career? I say life is an experience. Politics is one of those things where now at the point in my career that I am at, I can't imagine what it would have been, what my career would have been like if I didn't decide to continue to move forward. Just like with any other career that anybody else has had, you'll have your ups and downs. There were parts in my career after the campaign school where I had no clue how I was going to move forward. But the campaign school, I guess I would like to say, embedded in me the confidence to just move forward, even if I'm unsure of the unknown. And if you're afraid of the unknown, I get it. I understand. But then you're afraid of life. 
Because life is a big unknown. You don't know what's going to happen. And I mean, if the pandemic didn't teach us anything, it did teach us that. We woke up, we went to sleep every night thankful. We woke up scared every day because we didn't know who may have left us overnight. So the one thing I take from the whole experience at the campaign school that I know has shouldered me throughout this and the rest of my career since is that this whole thing is an experience. And as my father used to tell me, anything worth having is worth fighting for. And yes, politics is hard. And yes, I understand we are definitely in this point of politics where women, especially women of color, are not welcome in politics. And it's sad to say that after all of the headway that people like Patty and one of my sheroes, Shirley Chisholm, has done to make sure that I can walk into the Capitol every day. Um, but I also know that I have a legacy to uphold. And so where it may be fearful to walk through those doors, especially after January 6th, I stay prayed up, I stay hopeful, and I still go in being ready to do the work on the American for the American people on behalf of leader Hakeem Jeffries. Patty, Ernestine is absolutely brilliant and convicting in the passion that she expresses. And you mentioned earlier your work with another brilliant, passionate advocate, and that is the late Congresswoman Bella Abzug. We are now in the 30th year of that equality and credit legislation that she was the author for, and that I imagine had moments where she may have been afraid or where it seemed daunting. As we think about the future of women in politics, and we think about that history that got us to this point, What's the message that you give to people who may be thinking about doing this, doing it afraid, but doing it with conviction? That we need we need everybody in this with us, that we take a breath, rest, and then come back, come back with a vengeance, right? And join us. It's going to take more and more women um, taking the risk, running for office, working on campaigns, being leaders in their community. You know, Ernestine spoke so eloquently about the pain of 2016 when Hillary Clinton lost. We were swamped with calls um, after that loss. Women were depressed. They couldn't believe it. They were in shock. Um, what, you know, what do we do next? What do, what do we do? And I just said, we need to take a breath. We need to just breathe. We need to grieve this loss. And then we have to move forward. So then in 2017, when we had our first global women's march, we were, again, swamped with phone calls. Um, Hi, I'm, you know, I'm Anna from Akron, Ohio. I marched, I'm mad, I want to run for office. When's your next, uh, when's your next campaign school? Well, that's my idea of a good time on a Sunday afternoon is to return those phone calls. I was swamped after that. But then when I was having these conversations with these women who, again, had its kind of newly discovered passion for politics and saw the impact um, that this was going to have on their lives um, of, of Hillary losing, I said, oh, Anna, I'm so glad you called. Where are you registered to vote in, in Akron? Oh, I'm not registered to vote. You're not registered to vote. This is when I'm grateful to be on a phone call and not on a Zoom call. The Italian veins were popping out of my neck. You're not registered to vote. No, no, but I'm mad now. So I want to come to your school. No, 
you're not coming, you'll have a heart attack. Um, you know, we are not for everybody, which is the other thing that I like to say. We're not. Um, it, it's we we work you hard. Ernestine will share that we mimic the energy of a political campaign, you know, 12 hour day. You're not registered to vote. OK, well, do you have a pad and a pen handy? I'm going to give you the name of your registrar voters and you're going to go in tomorrow and register to vote. So a third of the women who reached out to us after that first global women's march weren't registered to vote. The second third were registered to vote, but didn't vote on on the in the presidential in 2016 because, quote, oh, the candidates were so similar. I just couldn't make up my mind. So two thirds of the women who had reached out to us were not ready for a five day intensive with us, but they were ready for a one day intensive with us. So that, again, thanks to that moment in history we turned something that was a challenge into something phenomenal. We have a one-day training now called the Campaign School at Yale, the basics. So what I like to say, we just had one with um, the Connecticut Conference of Municipalities last Saturday, and we talked about how more people of color can get involved on the local level. So the thing that's so great about the one-day training is if you have a newly discovered passion for politics, Join us. It's for everybody. If your idea of a good time is to spend eight hours with us on a Saturday, join us. And that has just taken off. I think we've had 20 or 25 of these one day trainings, both in person and again, thankfully for the technology via Zoom in the pandemic. So we'll be sure to put a link to our site so that people can join you if they are interested. Breathe, rest, and move forward. Thank you for the reminder. Patty Russo is executive director of the Campaign School at Yale University. Ernestine Dawson is a graduate of that program and most recently served as advisor to the Honorable Hakeem Jeffries. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you so much, Chloe. We had a wonderful time. Thank you. We'll have a link to the Penn State panel that we heard earlier, Politics Unequal, the State of Women in Elected Office. You can find it on our website at ctpublic.org disrupted. Our producers are Kevin Chang Barnum, Emily Cherish, Wayne Edwards, Meg Dalton, and Katie Tularski. Special thanks to our interns, Melody Rivera and Elizabeth Van Arnhem. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Happy Women's History Month.